Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Sarah Papalado, who I spoke with about parenting, life choices, uh, and the way that you move through the world. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it, because I enjoyed having it a lot. If you like the podcast and want to support it, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is the place to go. Uh, it's sort of, I put a lot of stuff up there for free, as well as my weekly salons and weekly book club and my weekly writers meetings. If you want to write something, then you come to the writers meeting and then we have a little workshop. It's a really nice creative space and um, I... I'm, I'm enjoying doing it very much. We're already getting people who are turning out work as a result, um, which makes me feel very proud and happy. Otherwise, I have a book uh, which you can support at unbound.com. It's called The Dancy Lagarde Reader, and it is a book based on a fictional author that I made up for a fake ad section in a podcast that I had set in an alternate universe. But even if you don't know any of those things, I think it will be an absolute blast for anybody who likes reading, anybody who's ever read a romance novel or read the back of a romance novel and laughed at the ridiculous synopsis. So that's unbound.com and look up the Dancy Lagarde reader or just Google Alice Fraser and Unbound and it should come up and you can pre-order a copy because it's already been funded. I'm not asking you for your, for your support. I don't need your support. But if you need this book, then you can also... Uh, get a copy for yourself, which is just delightfully ridiculous. As somebody like, I've been being told since I was like 16 that I should write a book and I've never had the confidence to do it, I think, because I was meant to be good at it. And that's kind of an intimidating thing. So walking uh, sort of sideways into this project has felt really satisfying and silly enough to be not intimidating. So I'm excited to write it and I'm excited for you to read it at unbound.com and then just look up Alice Fraser and you can get your copy of the Dancy Lagarde Reader. That's enough of my plugging and rambling. If you're in the UK, you can see my show Twist. I'm doing working in progresses all over the place and it'll be in Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival. Otherwise, you can probably see it on the internet at some point. And I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? Ooh, great question. Uh, I'm Sarah Papalardo, and um, I'm currently drinking a June Shine. I, I, I don't know if you have, it's hard kombucha. I have it's, never heard of a June Shine. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's um, just kombucha with a, a little bit of kick for the end of the day. I, I, I'm really, that's an advertisement for June Shine. I, I apologize. No, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that you're on, you're on theme because kombucha is uh, made from tea. I'm drinking a bottle of water with a straw that is way too long for the bottle. Um, I love it. But uh, what have you been up to recently and what have you been wrestling with? Well, um, my wife and I are currently uh, in the process of... of purchasing our first home together, which is a milestone. Um, and with with that kind of comes uh, the, the next steps of, you know, we, we want to have, have kids and wow. have finally started looking into the actual nuts and bolts of it, um, of, again, like having quit kids as a queer couple um, and just how much stuff and how many questions are involved that I don't I don't really think are are a part of um 
you know, a, a heterosexual baby-making process. So it's, it's challenging. That is super challenging. I wonder if at least some of those questions ought to be asked in the heterosexual baby-making process because I think one of the upsides plus things about queer relationships is, is having to ask questions about you know, gender roles, quote-unquote, roles in a relationship, that this kind of 50-50 division of labour, how are you going to do that if it's not a default? This person takes out the bin and this person does the crying, you know, important crying task deployed to a woman part. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, I think, potentially, partly at least, a positive thing. What are some of the questions that you're coming up against that you feel are, like, fair or unfair? Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's just a really good point about straight relationships. There's just so many questions that we've, like, are built into queer relationships that are, like, nobody thinks to ask. Like, what do you enjoy doing in the household? What don't you enjoy? Um, but yeah, that does kind of um, extend to to having a kid. Like, n right now, I, um, you know, even just the question of, like, who whose sperm should we use? Because we, um, you know, toyed with the idea of, like, having my half-brother um, do it. But, like, even with that, um, like, you have to get them genetic tested. You have to get a lawyer involved and sign a, a ton of complex legal agreements where um, going to a sperm bank, you don't. So, yeah, I mean, like, it really forces you to ask a lot of questions about like what genes mean to you um and I think yeah I mean I think a lot of straight people deal with this when faced with like adopting or having kids but it's kind of just like built into our our decision making of like what genetic material do we want to kind of shove in the oven and see what comes out right that is super fascinating. I was I just spent a week in uh, New Zealand and made friends with this lovely uh, lesbian couple who had four children together. Um, and th one of the things that they said was that in their community, the the generation above them of uh, lesbian couple mothers had 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 <laughs> legendarily a party where they just passed around a bowl of mixed sperm. Uh, in order to have their like it was like a commune thing where they wanted to, so they just kind of rolled the dice on that I was having a conversation in my I, I do a salon for my Patreon people today specifically I was having this conversation with somebody who was asked to be a sperm donor for uh, friends of his um, both of whom are trans and married and they want to have a kid and obviously they're facing these like nuts and bolts questions now and in the salon was somebody who whose job is introducing adopted children to their biological donors so there is not to like give you a scare story but there's a proportion of people who are uh, donor children who have this real psychic wound and feel a real lack in their lives and want to have that connection with their biological parents it's not necessarily because their adoptive families are you know bad or abusive or anything they just have this need and that was really interesting to me because I'm, I guess I tend to assume more that like, oh, if your parents love you, it doesn't really matter what the biology is. And I think for most people, that's probably true, but there's a certain proportion of people for whom it's not true. Why? Yeah. I don't know. 
And then I was also thinking about uh, my mother uh, it has, has died and I was pr- pregnant last year. I have a, I have a baby now. Um, one of the things in the second trimester, I got this headache that lasted for like a week. And all I wanted to do, like, was call her and go, did you have a headache? What did you do about it? Like that, and that really felt like it was missing. And that's obviously completely outside of the scope of, of adoptive parents. But there is, yeah, there's something about genetics that is more than just this atavistic desire to have your children ha, 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 and pass on your genes like there is I think it's too easy to completely dismiss genetics and be like well it'll be it'll be fine but at the same time I do think if you love your children enough it doesn't really matter where they come from right so. I mean I think yeah like we can all agree like broadly it's better for a kid to have a parent than not a parent but there is this kind of like moral thing you know like if you're a good person of course it shouldn't matter whether you adopt or don't adopt or things like that and I mean it's true it shouldn't ultimately matter but you're right like there is definitely some challenges there that need to be dealt with I don't know and that's just why I'm I'm seeing this as like oh it would be so complicated and deeply personal to find just someone I know who could just be in their life um just so they know that kind of stuff the thing where like I call my mom and I'm just like oh you and I definitely have this like random yeah headache or like weird autoimmune thing going on and it's it's there is just like a comfort there and you'd think like if you have the ability to do so then like go for it right um just to like make things easier on your kid like um and then adopt after that right but it's it's such a tough thing because again that just like it it just means like oh every time I think about this like future child that's like another like three to six months of just like finding the right person finding the lawyer and like and getting it all done and like I'm 30 I'm gonna be 38 in April and I'm already just thinking of like Every time I tack on something that feels important, that's just like kicking it down the line another six months. And like, thankfully, my wife is a little younger than me, but it's just like, Jesus, if I need to like freeze some eggs, I better get going like yesterday. Uh, so it's it's wild. But um, it is wild. And then it's not just about the ability to bear the child. It's like, do I want to be? 50 with a 10 year old? Like this is right. a thing, you know, do I have Which the energy like- for it? And it's so much more normal now, right? Like, especially, you know, within the comedy community to... I feel like most of my friends who have kids had started in their late 30s or, like, had a kid at 40. Thank God. Um, We're not going to, like, be the only ones. Um, But, yeah, it is something to think about. I mean, I I feel, like, grateful that I think, you know, it's cliche, but, like, 50 is going to be the new 40 when we're 50. Um, Yes. But it does. It does seem exhausting. Like... I am exhausted now without kids. Yes. I don't know how you do it. Like, I don't know how you just, like, tack on that additional thing onto life already. Um, And, yeah. It is impossible and you just do it. Like, that's kind of the thing. Like, you just, it just has to be done and so you do it and and you find that, you know, for example, I only recently uh, night weaned my baby, which is to say I stopped breastfeeding her at night. Um... I've just spent a week feeling like I have rockets attached to my legs. Uh, it's very exciting to have that many calories available to my brain. Um, 
but I, I have an app that tracks when I feed her just out of interest mainly because then you know she feeds less often or she feeds more often it just I am enjoying that part of it and if you go why is she so cranky oh it's been x number of hours um but I can tell you for a fact that for 13 months I didn't get more than three hours of sleep at a time now if you'd asked me whether that would have been possible three years ago I would have said no I would die (laughs) but (laughs) Apparently you can do it and fine, you know, it's fine. It's, you do it. It's not the best you've ever felt in your life. But, you know, also I had her in the bed with me, which meant that I didn't have to like wake up and get up each time, which meant that I probably night fed her for longer than somebody who would have to get up or not. Like it's just, you just make all these different little calculations and these like logistical calculations, probably very boring to a listener who's not contemplating children. But it's, it's fascinating because you're creating this balance between the baby's needs and your well-being and consequently the baby's well-being. Like if you're at a point where you're going to absolutely like flip it if the baby wakes you up one more time, then you've got a, you've got a night wean. And right. like these, these kind of benefits and, and detriments to your baby and to you and to like the whole system and to your relationship with your partner and your relationship with the world and your relationship with your work it just becomes a moving calculation. Yeah, for sure. And like, it, it's, I mean, of course, nowadays with like everyone telling you what you should do, it's like, if you were just like living in just like the middle of nowhere, somewhere in Siberia, you would just like go with like, you would just go with the flow and do what feels right. But like, just with all that added layer of, of, of shit on top of it, it just makes it so much harder because I'm sure people are like, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't night wean, you shouldn't have them sleep with you in the bed for, like, stupid reason X, Y, Z. But, you know, it's like, who are you going to listen to? Like, yourself or some guy? So it was really interesting because I'm kind of on the, on the spectrum of, like, get him out of the bed and put him in a job as quickly as possible to, like, milk and love, the baby's always <laughs> right. I'm probably more on the milk and love end of that uh, spectrum. And I, I was in the hospital after giving birth and... Um, they were like, oh, we have to put the baby in a crib next to you. You can't have the baby in the bed with you for legal reasons. Um, but you can feed them. And, like, every nurse that came in was like, but if you are going to put the baby in the bed with you, this is the way to do it most safely. Wow. Uh, you know, so for, like, liability legal reasons, they can't let you sleep in the baby in the bed with the baby. And there are all these, like, statistics, but, like, basically – a lot of the risks disappear if you take out like three major risk factors and so you know like being on on um, drowsy making medication uh etc there's a few like a few elements where I was just like this is a risk I'm willing to take because if the baby is in the crib I am awake looking at the baby (laughs) like that's and I need to sleep so the baby is is going to be tucked in and I'm going to like google the position to be in you know and it'll be fine probably it'll be fine honestly see like i don't know if this is like my true toxic trait but i think my toxic trait is is thinking like i could figure that out and like fuck whoever's telling you what to do or whatever the law is saying and like you can just figure it out and read between the lines i mean isn't that the beauty of reddit after all <laughs> yes, but, that, uh... that is the beauty of reddit raise raise your child according to the tenets of reddit i think go, yeah, go yeah. for it <laughs> You'll only go down a few conspiracy theory holes, but it's fine, you know. They'll just 
grow up a flat earther or something. But no, I mean, you really can. Like, there's, you know, a lot. You can't just paint such a broad brush on something that's so personal and so specific to an individual parent and child. But yeah, with that extra layer, it's like even my straight friends who are exactly the same age as me and obviously have the luxury of birth control have the burden of just overthinking this too much, just like me. And, uh, you know, I I recently kind of realized I'm, like, not alone in being like, but this and that and this. Like, a lot of my straight friends are still thinking that and are just like, I think we'll just get it figured out in another two years. We just have to buy that house that no one can afford right now and get settled and then everything will be perfect. And it's just, I just don't think that's going to happen necessarily. So when when my mom was pregnant with us, this is like family legend, is dad said, don't we need like a crib or something? And my mom said, we'll just pull out a drawer and put some towels in it. Like, right. You, in a cardboard you figure box. it out. Well, the things that right. you think that your child needs are not things that your child needs. The things that your child needs are just like you and the marrow of your bones, basically. Mm. <laughs> Almost all of the like parental devices are there to substitute for parental attention. And I don't mean that in a way that denigrates their value because we now live in a world where it's very difficult to have one person staying at home and putting all of their energy and juice into the children. And so you will probably find yourself using some of these tools. But I mean, when I say tools, I mean things like a pram is a substitute for you carrying the baby and you're not going to just like carry the baby everywhere because we're not that buff anymore as a species um but like it is a substitute for having the baby on your body and you do miss something and I say this as somebody who has a pram and uses a pram some of the things that I feel really privileged to have experienced are things that I had when I was traveling and didn't have a pram so I was in Manchester with the baby strapped to my chest facing outwards and I heard uh, she loves reading books I've been reading her lots of books there's a puppy in her book and I was talking about the the dog in the book and um we were just walking along in the street and I heard her go Ugh, and her little body like recoiled into me and I could see from her eyeline that what she'd done was she'd seen a dog and she had connected the dog that she saw with the oh. dog in the book and she it was you know developmentally you know I have a little app that tells you the developmental stage and that was appropriate for the thing she was connecting these this word cloud dog the picture of the dog a real dog and they were all the same thing and I could I felt that in her little body and that like I'm so delighted That's so and I wouldn't sick. have noticed I wouldn't even notice that if she were in a pram it's like she saw a celebrity that's yeah. amazing Oh yeah. my God, she's so into dogs. And she, she, she now is like, she'll see a dog and just be like, ah, they're real. Um, <laughs> Can I take a selfie? That's, that's so amazing. And yeah, it just like, I know. I mean, I laugh because I find the, I found this like Twitter account that was just going way too hard on, well, okay. I agree. It's, it's like a no strollers Twitter. And like all they ever tweet about is how bad strollers or prams are. And I was like, I kind of agree. But then I realized they also are like weirdly right wing and Trumpy. And I'm like, oh, God, it's like this weird intersection of kind of like, you know, close knit parenting and all that and going back to the basics, but also has like weird intersections with politics that weird me out. Uh, But all that said, I'm like, I'm with you there. Like, I think that like being separate from like, 
I don't think that we were designed to be physically separate from our kids in that way. And I also don't think they were designed to just be sitting, like, for hours a day. Yes. It's just, like, training them to, I guess, be, like, office workers. But, yeah, I was, I was like, oh, go ahead. That, that kind of intersection, this is the problem, right? Because you, you talk about these things and, and good, like, there's, a, like, an inherent, like, moral judgment of, like, this is a good way to do it and... And that's tricky because you have that like trad wife kind of right wing group of people there. And then you also have your own kind of needs as a person and and as a a wage earner and as a worker, as well as being a a parent. But you want to talk about it and you want to talk about it in a way that doesn't make people feel judged and alienated because of course you're going to use a pram. Like, right. It's just you also have to not lie to yourself about the cost, but also not exaggerate the cost because it's like, quote, unquote, a cost. Like, probably if a baby is never carried and only ever put in a pram for their whole life, there will be, like, serious psychological damage. But also that's, you know, if if it's like a pram for an hour a day or, like, it's like... You have to be realistic, I think. There's a kind of a... I'm not articulating this very well. No, yeah, it's um, like use it as a tool, not a crutch, right? Yeah, yeah, but also it's like uh, people who are obsessive about their child only eating, like, organic food. Yeah. And that's more expensive and more laborious and they, you know, spend hours making these incredible smoothies for their child and their child never touches anything toxic or artificial or whatever it happens to be. I reckon that kid's going to end up more messed up. Oh, yeah. In in many ways. And equally, the parent who's only ever feeding their child chicken nuggets, that's a child that's going to end up severely messed up. And there's some place in between those two where you are a, a normal human being about it, where you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll try and make sure that the food is organic if I can get my hands on it or if it's cheap or if, you know, whatever it is, you find that that balance or you don't believe in organic food and whatever whatever it is but if you if you're the person who thinks that so for example I had this idea that I wouldn't give my child sugar until they were at least one and I had this idea of uh, at her first birthday present she'd have some cake and it would blow her tiny mind and then Hmm. when she was 11 months old I was in Florence in Italy and she was eating pasta with her hands while sitting on my lap sweet uh, and I thought, I'm a great parent. <laughs> and uh, the owner of the restaurant came along, was charmed by my charming baby and said, oh, I've, I've got this sweet that I've just made, this little biscuity thing, and gave her the biscuit. And she shoved it straight in her mouth. And I was like, cool. Like That's it's a month too. early on my schedule. I'm not going to like whack it out of her hands. This is a great experience. Yeah. That's you know? beautiful. Yeah, you know, you know, like the, I guess the thing that everyone talks about is like iPads and screen time and stuff like that and it's like yeah obviously I don't want my kid like relying on an iPad or or my phone or anything like that and I don't even want to like model that behavior in front of them but on the flip side like I think maybe the equivalent when we were growing up was like who had cable or not and like the kids who kind of grew up without cable TV like lost out on so much pop culture reference and stuff that like it's kind of like important to my job now to have that. So I don't want, I don't want a kid to just be like completely cut off from society like that, but also not addicted to it, right? Yeah, it's just about finding the balance. So apparently the statistical data is mainly out of two studies from Canada. I'm, I'm going to tell you this because my brother is a nerd and sent me all this data. Um, 
basically you kind of want to keep them more or less away from screens until they're two except for like um facetime calls with with friends or family members because that's like interactive mm. um anything with cuts that are shorter than three seconds is like confusing to their brains it sort of sedates part of their brain and overstimulates another part of their brain and if you watch more than an hour so it's like per hour of television that you watch per day or per hour of screen time that you have per day, um, there's like a 10% increased chance of attention deficit stuff. Uh, But you think about people who are like children, babies, who are watching more than an hour of television a day, that's probably a, a circumstance where like the parents are like stressed out, working so much they don't have time to pay attention to the kid. Like that's not... It's not a likely circumstance um, right. for, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know you, but also, you know, maybe one day you have to put the kid in front of the television for two hours. I don't think that's a make or break thing. It's like if you're doing it for two hours every day. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's like, of course, my kid should watch a movie. Like, of course. But, but yeah, I mean, I watched this documentary on Barney. Did you guys have Barney in Australia? Uh, we, yes. Yeah, we did. Okay. I was not allowed so, to watch TV as a kid at all. So. No. Oh, you were on it. So wait, do you, do you have like regrets over that? Or are you glad you didn't watch TV? I have regrets to a certain extent in that. Uh, we were occasionally allowed to watch movies. We watched sort of the same mm-hmm. six movies. It was a weird, a weird handful. Uh, one was like, I know where I'm going, which was a weird uh, black and white movie. It was like a romance movie where a lady went to an island, but it had Gaelic in it because my mom was studying Gaelic. And so that, that was one of the movies that we watched like eight million times. And there was like Singing in the Rain and Fantasia and Guys and Dolls. And like it was just such an odd mix of 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 things so those are the movies we're allowed to watch at a certain age we were allowed to watch one television show a a week and this is where my regrets begin which was that the television show we watched i don't know why was hercules Hmm. uh, with kevin sorbo and then i think because it was advertised in the same time slot we we then chose to watch xena that was our show and then at some point it was the adventures of lois and clark and again, I think it was just because there were ads in that time slot for the thing. And then it was Gladiators, the um, the fighting game show game where they had like normal people going up against. Yeah, American Gladiators, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was such a, what a time in TV that was. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like that I had no idea what was on TV and I don't know why. I assume it was like a 7.30 p.m. time slot, so it was a- available to us, but. That was that was my early was television that education. Was, that was your culture. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's such a weird it's such a weird thing. Like I, I mean, with like kids shows. I mean, I guess like any TV is good just to like again understand story and like basic things like that. I feel like there's some value in that. But the screwed up thing about kids television is it actually just like it's designed not to have a story or something that like you can a kid can like learn to internalize and and repeat it's designed to just like not let their eyeballs stray from a screen and they started doing this i guess barney was like the groundbreaking tv show back in the 80s and the 90s where they would focus group all these like three-year-olds and anytime anytime a kid would like look away from the screen if there was like a sound over there they'd be like oh we fucked up like we need to rework this segment to make it more captivating and keep their eyeballs on it which is so dark and 
has no redeeming value other than, I guess, not having your kid um, bother you. But again, I'm not even saying that with judgment. I mean, like, cut to me three years from now, and <laughs> my kids will be watching Dancing Bananas on YouTube for three hours. I have no idea. The new monster is Coco Melon, just as a heads yes. up. That, but this yes. is the other thing, is like, I'm thinking about whether, how and whether I'm going to introduce television to my child, and there is a temptation, slight but real, to just introduce her to um, to things chronologically, like start her on silent film, and her Ooh. child. I like that. I like start with the 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 train film that we all like learned in like film one hundred and one, where it like it's from like nineteen oh eight or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, and like all about hedonistic level that she doesn't learn to like enjoy these like jazzy heights I think maybe that's kind of one of my parenting vague parenting philosophies is like no bingly bangly jingly jangly like overstimulation things because she's just got a face like she's just had a face for the first time she's not like a jaded New York socialite who needs to be have her toes tickled with feathers while eating caviar she like she you can just show her uh, so one of the things is like flying between here and England it's a 24-hour flight so I break my screen rule but like I just what I what I do to break the screen rules, I just show her a live stream of a of a fish tank. <laughs> That's great, and she loves it. It's like, so in my head, it's like it's like looking through a window. It's not really a screen, you know. Like I've I've got yeah. this elaborate justification for my own bizarre moral principles that I have for no real reason. But um, yeah, she loves a fish tank. She'll watch that for like fifteen minutes and then go back to her favorite plane pursuit, which is walking down the plane looking at people until they look at her and then waving and going, hello. Oh, that's a good gig. Yeah. yeah. So she, she'll, she'll be quite patient. Someone's on their phone or whatever. She'll just wait, wait them out until their eyes flick up and then she'll catch their attention. Nom, 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 nom. Use it to feed her little oh, brain. That's adorable. Wow. Wish you were on my flights. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's such a weird screen time. I know it's like everyone talks about it far too much but it is there is something I, I think like your plan it seems is like the best case to like keep your kid from being depressed at 12 right because <laughs> it's just like all of these kids who like get a phone so early like they're just overstimulated and sad and like have no meaningful interaction with the physical world and it just bums me out so much well it's one of those things as well of like part of being a parent is like confronting the things about yourself that are crutches and the things about yourself that are suboptimal and like my uh, disassociative habit of when I'm under stress of just like plunging into a fantasy novel and just reading it for the entire series over the course of a week and never talking to anybody like that is no longer available to me so when I'm stressed out I actually have to deal with it um mm. And so half of parenting is parenting yourself and like actually just being forced to sew up all those things that you've had like patches on for years. Uh, I think that's probably the hardest thing as well of just like, yeah, okay, so I reach for my phone too often and I don't want her to see that. So I have to become a better person. Oh, God. yeah right what a nightmare I know it keeps you it keeps you honest but I mean at least you have that self-awareness I don't think a lot of people do but there's there's also that like thing of like 
where you overcorrect anything that happened that your parents did to you, and you're like, my kid is never gonna know what it's like to talk about bodies or like you know pant sizes or something like that. I don't know. I I don't know what that is for for other people, but yeah, I'm always like, am I just gonna overcorrect everything too hard? Because you know, yeah, like, I mean, this is I like this like, is totally a thing, and you realize that that your parents were doing that as well. Like that's a weird insight that that like my dad was weirdly distant when we got emotional, uh, which felt like emotional abandonment at the time because his mum was uh, an, an adrenaline junkie who'd survived the Holocaust, so she loved a fight, and when she lost her temper, she would just scream and throw things. So he's like, "I'm never going to scream and throw things," which meant that if we got upset, he would just blank us, you know. Mm. Which to mm-hmm. me, I'm like, I'm never gonna leave my child to like be upset on its own. I like, you just have to like, you have to figure it out as you go. Um, totally, and, and I mean, like, that's such a good point too, because so much of it, it depends on the child and how like they end up reacting to that. Because like, one kid could be like, oh great, I loved that my dad was so calm, and someone else would like just has a need to like have an emotional exchange that you know could be healthy, and it's just. It's such a crapshoot there. Yeah, I'm genuinely so proud that my dad never raised his voice to us. And also, if anybody ignores me, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> like... yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a wild thing. I, I had an ex, and um, an ex who was neurotypical and had, had like some trouble with dealing with like her mother and her sister because her mother and her sister got along so well that it was like, it was like actually traumatic for her. And what... I mean, I think we all collectively slowly realized was her mother was very autistic and her sister was very autistic. And it was like just that alone, just them being themselves was perfectly fine for them and really traumatic for my ex. And it's just a really, I mean, again, it's just like the luck of the draw that you could just being just like existing can be traumatic for them or the the best thing in the world. Yeah, I have I have a, a friend who only had sisters and she's only had sons and she's really upset about it because she doesn't know how to relate to boys or how boys ought to relate to each other or, you know, because she's so... I think everyone vaguely wants to give their children the good version of their own childhood. Um, yeah. Like the same as what they had but with all of the bad bits... <laughs> taken out (laughs) right but yeah how do you apply that to this like other entire like culture I guess and if if you can even say that like you know little boys have have a culture of their own I I wouldn't even know I mean I grew up in really as an only child I just have a half brother but I don't I don't have any idea how to relate to any siblings at all no idea and so it's just such a it's a weird discussion to have with my my wife because you know she has a brother and can't imagine what life is like without one oh yeah I mean we're gonna I'm I'm a twin and it's just us. But oh, I was wow. like, when I when I found out I was only having one child, I was like, but how do you, how do you, would they be lonely? Like I don't, like I didn't know how to process the concept of a, a lone child. Uh, it's so yeah. strange. I, everyone everyone thinks it's the worst thing in the world, but it's like it teaches you how to be alone with yourself so well like I do wish my parents like let me hang out a little more like I think my mom was just like too lazy to like drive me to a friend's house or something because we were in the (laughs) suburbs but like but you really learn to be alone with yourself so so well and while it's not always the greatest it's it it, it has some value 
Um, but like, yeah, it's like, they're not going to like grow up to be psychopaths. Anyway, I really do think that our generation is mostly going to have only children or just like way more only children than we've ever seen before. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when they're all like 10 or 15. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, with one of kind of to step away from children, generally there's like this loneliness epidemic, but I, I think that's more to do with technology than only childhood. You know, I think, I think you can provide enough of a facsimile of what socialising does for you that you can fill your mouth while starving to death in terms of what's actually... Part of what's actually nourishing about other people is their difficulty. That it's difficult to live with people, it's difficult to be around people, you have to go out of your way, you have to go to a party that you don't really enjoy or stay longer than you would like or listen to someone's boring story or put up with their weird idiosyncrasy about never cleaning the spoons right or whatever it is. All of those things are difficult and the internet sort of cultivates this feeling that that engagement should be frictionless or pleasurable, that you should be able to have universally enjoyable experiences because if you don't if you're not enjoying the video you're watching you can click out and watch something else but there's something about that labor of being around other difficult people that I think is really important it's it's kind of like the entry fee for meaningful connection right it's like that's the cost of it because we can always get that idealized form somewhere online like even you know it's it's similarly affected how people have sex and just how like just like there's been too many like idealized situations that like nothing real is ever good enough but but yeah it's it's so hard because it is just like yeah everything we put in our mouths um again nothing to do with sex but I mean just like (laughs) the empty calories of these these easy exchanges are so like it, it takes work to not feel alone at this point because all the ingredients for loneliness are just being shoved in our face. Like it really just takes work to push them aside a little bit and make room for those connections. And it's exhausting. Like, right. Like showing up, I was just saying, like I had to go to a party alone and I I wanted to die. Like I just (laughs) wanted to die going alone, but I put on my best face and just like had some drinks and, um, and these people invited me to Costa Rica next week. So I'm going to Costa Rica with them. Like, it's just super <laughs> random, but I'm just like, wow, if that wasn't, not that that's like meaningful connection, but uh, no. I'm like, okay, it's just like, yeah, it's just one moment of an, of discomfort, like can lead to so many better, better things. But well, and, and also when you have a kid, you feel, you feel this really strongly that there are, there's a segment of people who think that children should exist outside of life that you're kind of shunted into this parenting bubble, which is partly built out of a kind of a Victorian idea of the purity of childhood. Children shouldn't be in, like, dirty human spaces. They should be in a special imaginary childhood space. And also get that annoying child off the train. It's annoying me. It shouldn't be in a cafe. It shouldn't be in public. It shouldn't be uh, in my eye line because it's inconvenient. And you see that extending out to like disabled people and old people, they create, you create the, your little silos so you don't have to confront them because it's difficult and it's hard and it's sad and it's inconvenient. And the outcome is things like COVID denial because there's a special place for sick people and they just disappear into that special place and you never see them again. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think like, I don't know if this like is if it's like this in Australia, but like our infrastructure in New York kind of ensures that that's going to happen unless you take active measures otherwise. Like I live in a neighborhood where everyone is like me because of the price point. And it's just like, of course, everyone is like exactly between 30 and 40 and about to have kids or has young kids. And there's like very little difference from that because of just like the way housing is is structured and like bars and restaurants are located, which is just like and And the way up. schools are run. It's super weird mm. to have all of your society be 40 other children of exactly the same age. That's deeply unnatural, you know, mm. and, and, it, and you miss something from not having friends who are five years older and for not having friends who are 10 years younger. I think, you know, my theory is that, like, significant proportion of the problems of adolescence would be solved if every teenager had to look after a five-year-old three days a week. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Right. And that's, like, that's how we grew up. Like, we would play in the neighborhood, and I just, I don't know if that really happens anymore. Like, all I've heard is there's play dates, but I'm like, we never had play dates. We just went outside and waited for a kid to just go outside, too, you know? But, yeah, yeah. or you'd get, like, you know, babysat by grandma or something, but it just, you know, now grandma lives a thousand miles away in Florida. Yeah, you can, you can FaceTime with grandma if she can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should, I should wrap this up or start to wrap this up. Um, this has been really good. I I normally uh, sort of know people before I have them on tea with Alice. It's unusual for me to uh, have someone on who I've never met before. This has been so nice. I feel like I, I, I'm getting to know you. And partly it's very nice because I am a big fan of your work. I really like uh, Reductress. But where can people find you and support you online? You can find me kind of all over the internets at Your Papalardo. That's just Y-O-U-R, my last name. And you can check out Reductress at Reductress on all the social medias. Um, that is so wonderful. Thank you for having tea with me. It was a pleasure. Oh, do you know her or do you not? This stuff is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lovely rifles all out.